Hey, it's time for Wilderness Medicine. You're listening to ReachMD. This is the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Krakowski, and I'm joined today by Christopher Van Tilburg, MD, a Wilderness Medical Society member and author of the new book, Mountain Rescue Doctor. Today, we're talking about wilderness medicine in the extremes of nature. Hello, Dr. Van Tilburg. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're pleased that you could make it. We are here together at the Park City, Utah Conference in Mountain Medicine, sponsored by the Wilderness Medical Society. We're very fortunate to have you with us today. So tell us, you wrote this book. Is this your first? No, this is actually my eighth book. Eighth book. Yes. Wow. And what led you to uh, sit down and knock this one out? Well, I'd written a lot of outdoor safety books and guidebooks, and I had it in my mind that I was going to write a medical thriller and read tons and tons of medical thriller. And then it dawned on me one day that I had all these fabulous stories about mountain rescue in Hood River County, Oregon, where I live. And it just dawned on me one day that I should collect all these stories and put them in a book. Wow. And what is your background from a clinical perspective? My background is I'm trained in family practice and I do emergency medicine now. And with a sort of a specialty in pediatrics as well, as it relates to the wilderness, I think. Yeah, I speak frequently on ski and snowboard medicine, on wilderness medicine pertaining to children and on uh, family adventuring. And from an outdoors perspective, what do you like to do? Oh, I do almost everything. Nowadays, I bike a lot, trail run, ski, snowboard, climb. I still climb quite a bit. Wow. And did that sort of relate to what we're seeing in the book, your own personal experiences, or is this from other people's journeys through the wilderness? Well, this is a first-person narrative, so it's all my experiences, and it's all stories that I experienced and wrote about. What is the first chapter? What do you talk about in the beginning of the book? How did the readers get introduced to this sort of daunting uh, material here, Mountain Rescue Doctor? The book starts off with a bang, and it starts off with a trauma patient who's deep in a canyon in the Columbia River Gorge in Oregon, where I live. And you're a doctor, so you know that that first hour of trying to reach a patient, the trauma doc's called the golden hour. And so that first chapter is about saving a life in the wilderness. You were involved in doing that? Yeah, my whole team was. And how did it work out? You know, saving the person's life was really half the battle. And the second half of the battle was extricating them from the wilderness. Which is often harder than that person's injuries. Correct. Sometimes. Exactly. And were you able to get the patient out? Yeah, we did. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Your book is interesting because it also deals with a number of wilderness medicine issues that actually we've never discussed on our program to date. And that is sort of the legal and financial aspects of a search and rescue, which I find fascinating because... You sometimes have people who will go out into an extreme environment where they, quite honestly, are putting themselves at risk, which is, let's be honest, some part of the fun. There's an adrenaline rush there. But when things go wrong, now they're in a difficult spot and it's hard to get them. And rescuing them can sometimes put other people in danger. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. You know, I wrote this book. I didn't want this book just to be about myself and my team. So I tried to make it a little more hefty. And I do talk quite a bit about risks involved in search and rescue and the cost. And in my case, because I'm a doctor, I talk quite a bit about the medical liability. Not only does it give the book heft, it also gives me a chance on behalf of search and rescue volunteers to tell our side of the story, because we always hear the side of the story from the lawyers and the lawmakers and the taxpayers. But we often don't hear the side of the story from those of us who are out there spending our time and our own personal resources to go fetch somebody. Can you talk to us a little bit about what happened on Mount Hood? In December 2006, we had a massive search, probably one of the largest searches in Oregon. It was about a 14-day search, which actually continued beyond the 14 days. And well into the summer, six months later, we went up looking for the missing climbers. But it was a fairly 
substantial search in regards to resources. It was a lot of money, a lot of volunteers, and it was fairly massive. And what was the backstory? Who got lost? Or There were three climbers that left their car to climb the north side of Mount Hood, which is a fairly difficult climbing route, and they were reported missing three days later. But because the weather was so incredibly bad, we didn't actually really mount a realistic search until they were missing for four days, and our best searching days were after they'd been missing a week. At that point, you probably weren't expecting the best. We don't. You know, we always go out hoping the best, but we're fairly realistic. Search and rescue volunteers are fairly realistic, although we did have a couple of teenagers who walked off Mount Hood uh, about 20 years ago after staying on the mountain for 11 days. 11 days. So we did actually have at least some little bit of a hope. Yeah. And what was it that you found seven days into the search? What were the conditions like for your team? Well, I was up on two days searching, and it was about day nine and ten into the when they were missing, and about day seven, eight when they were into the search. It was beautiful, beautiful, clear blue sky, light wind as in 15 miles an hour, but really high avalanche danger. So even though those of us who are experienced know that the blue sky and light wind is a pretty special day in the mountains if you're not searching, but the uh, avalanche danger was very high, so we had difficulty reaching all of our search objectives. And for the people listening, Tell us a little bit about what it means when you go out and say there's an avalanche danger. What signs are you looking for out there? Well, it's um, fairly complicated science, which is one reason why we're here at this conference. Yeah, to, to Everybody's here to learn about it. But we look for signs of recent avalanche activity, signs of wind loading slopes, signs of unstable snow under our feet. So you were really in an area where no one had been in a while and going out there put your team at risk. Correct. Yeah, we left our high cabin at 6,000 feet and skied up to 9,000 feet, but we had to divert from our original plan because of the uh, high avalanche danger. Well, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. This is the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Krakowski, and I'm joined today by Christopher Van Tilburg, MD, a longtime member of the Wilderness Medical Society and author of a fascinating new book called Mountain Rescue Doctor. We're talking a little bit about Mount Hood right now and the challenges of a team going out and rescuing or attempting to rescue people who have put themselves in danger in a potentially hostile environment. Dr. Van Tilburg, so you're about day eight or nine into the search and rescue. When did things really pick up for your team? When did this become a potential problem in terms of hazards for your own people? That's a great question. Every time we step out the door, it's fairly risky. Sometimes it's more riskier than others. Our team, as well as almost every search and rescue and mountain rescue team in the nation, has our first goal is to protect ourselves. Second goal, protect our team. And third goal, go fetch the patient. Yeah. There's a saying in in sailing, one hand for you, one hand for the boat. So I I think it probably applies across the board, you know, watch your back while you're helping someone else. So it's pretty amazing that even people out there willing to risk their own lives in search of total strangers, really. Yeah, we do it, you know, for a number of reasons, but we do it because we love getting out in the wilderness and helping people. We do it because we have the skills. It's a community service. And we also do it, I think, a lot of us because we hope that somebody comes looking for us someday if we yeah, need help. absolutely. And I would imagine that part of the same draw for the people that eventually got themselves lost, that adrenaline rush also applies to the team going out there. They're in the same environment. They know that there's some risk, but there is an excitement there. And, and But I agree with you. There must be in the back of their mind, hopefully someone would do this for me as well. It's pretty cool that there's a, such a community of people out there like right. yourself and the rest of the Wilderness Medical Society willing to do this. So talk a little bit about what happened once the search and rescue took place. How did this translate to your book? What are we reading about in the last chapter here that applies sort of on a much wider scale in terms of some of the risk involved in search and rescue and how that applies to future searches? 
Well, you know, the chapter particularly pertaining to Mount Hood, it's, it's sort of my version and my colleague's version of the search operation. And the media sort of picks up on kind of minute things sometimes, like the media really for two days talked about nothing but the high winds on Mount Hood. And it's always windy up high on Mount Hood every single day, practically. And that's just part of our environment on Mount Hood. So this book I really focused on our perspective of the costs and the risks of the search. And it's basically us leaving work or leaving our families, putting ourselves into risk, putting our lives on hold to go out and search. And that's a big part of my perspective of the search. And ultimately, were you able to help the people who were lost? Not on the December 2006 search. We found one person deceased and two other people are still missing. Was anyone from your search and rescue party injured themselves? No, we've had injuries in the past, minor injuries, but um, no, we're very, very cautious. You talk about the adrenaline rush that adventure sports enthusiasts go through. We do go through that somewhat as a, when we're on a mountain rescue call out, but we're very, very cautious. In fact, when we get our pep talk at search base before we leave at 630 in the morning, the first thing that our operations chief says is protect yourself, stay hydrated, stay warm. It's really a full-time job out there just to protect yourself. Having gone through this and seen this firsthand, you must have a personal feeling one way or the other in terms of if someone is lost out in the wilderness and requires sort of a a large-scale search and rescue extraction operation, what's your own personal feeling in terms of who pays for all this and who, either from a financial perspective or a legal perspective, who should be responsible when something like this happens? Well, my feeling is similar to the entire Mountain Rescue Association membership in that we don't feel that we should charge people for rescues. It's kind of like if you call the fire department, they have to come to your house, or you call the police and they have to come to your house. If you have to call the sheriff department because you're lost in the wilderness, that's part of what the infrastructure of this public service is for. And so we don't feel we should. There's all sorts of ramifications if you start sending people a bill or mandating fees And so we're fortunate that almost probably a half of all of our rescues, we get some sort of thank you, a donation, a nice card. And the families of the search from December 2006 sent a sizable donation to all the search and rescue units involved. Oh, that's very nice to hear. Yeah. Plus, I would imagine just by being out there, I mean, it's obviously good press that what you're doing for the people who are lost, that's probably helpful to organizations like the Wilderness Medical Society, just to let people know that you guys are even out there in the first place. Exactly. And people pick up on the climbing searches because they're very romantic and very interesting. But actually in Oregon, the majority of search and rescue missions are for motorists. Oh, really? And hunters. Hunters. But we don't hear that much about those searches on the news because it's just not as dramatic and romantic as mountaineers who get lost and hurt. Sure. So it's almost like you're approaching this as a public utility in terms of, just like you said, firefighters, stop fires, mountain rescuers are there available when, when that happens. Do you get a lot of resistance from or cooperation from the local governments? Do they work closely with you as a person going out on your own, or are you coordinated with their efforts at the same time? How does that work from well, infrastructure? We, we work like almost every search and rescue unit in the country under the sheriff department. So we're officially working on behalf of the sheriff department. But we work closely with volunteer firefighters. We work with Forest Service personnel, National Park personnel, and sometimes we work with a mishmash of people to get the job done. But we work under the sheriff department. And what's your best success story in terms of a good search and rescue? When was something that you did that just I mean, made your day? Well, the first couple chapters in the book highlights probably the two 
most rewarding saves. And they're not just about me, they're our whole team. But one of them was the person I talked about already who was injured in a canyon. And the other person was a, a case I had at the Mountain Clinic up in Mount Hood Meadows, which is a big ski resort on Mount Hood. And what happened there? Well, we um, basically had to resuscitate a patient and evacuate the person by life flight in very tough conditions. You, you can imagine, you've taken care of a cardiac arrest in the hospital before. You can imagine trying to resuscitate somebody in a little tiny clinic in a ski resort that's 50 miles from a hospital and having thick cloud cover so a helicopter can't land. Crazy. Yeah, but we pulled it off. Well, I'd like to thank Dr. Christopher Van Tilburg of the Wilderness Medical Society for dropping in today to discuss his new book, Mountain Rescue Doctor. For more information about Dr. Van Tilburg's work as a wilderness medicine expert, please visit his online website at www.docwild.net. That's www.docwild.net. And of course, for more information about this program, please visit us at reachmd.com. Thanks for listening.